such a great, great time together. Before we begin this morning, let's uh, bow for prayer, please. <laughs> Heavenly Father, we stand in your presence today as creatures that you have made, as those who are subject to your will and to your word, grateful to you for your love and care, thankful that this is your world, and thankful that we are your people. And we pray that we might day by day learn more and more what that means and how to live in this world. And we pray for a world, Father, that does not know that. And pray that we will be your instruments in helping others to come to know. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. It was on January 30th, 2019, that our governor shocked a great many people and pleased many more when he said in a radio interview on station WTOP in Washington, D.C., that he supported the idea of allowing newborn children to die if their mother so chose. He was asked whether or not he supported a bill that was introduced into the House of Delegates by Delegate Emily Tran, which would allow an abortion right up to the point at which the mother went into labor, and that would reduce the number of doctors who would need to approve of that procedure from three to just one. And when our governor was asked that, here's what he said, and I'm quoting. When we talk about third-term abortions, these are done at the consent, obviously, of the mother, with the consent of a physician, more than one physician, by the way, which proved to be false because that's not what the bill said. More than one physician, by the way, and it's done in cases where there may be abnormalities, there may be a fetus that's non-viable, if the mother is in labor, I can tell you exactly what would happen. The infant would be delivered. The infant would be kept comfortable. The infant would be resuscitated if that's what the mother and the family desired. And then a discussion would ensue between the physicians and the mother. In saying that, Governor Northam joined in approving a practice that goes back to ancient times that is plainly and simply known as infanticide. In the ancient world, it wasn't abortion. It took the form of exposing infants who were unwanted, usually on the town garbage heap, and just leaving them there either to be claimed by someone else and raised as slaves or servants or even prostitutes, or else just left to die. And such a procedure, while it would be frowned upon today, is not so very different in reality, from what has been proposed. We ask ourselves, how could anyone, much less the governor of a state, much less a governor who by profession is a pediatrician, approve such a barbaric practice? It goes back to the year 1973 and the Supreme Court's decision in a case that has now become known as Roe versus Wade, which legalized abortion on demand. Abortion on demand, meaning not that an abortion was needed for any purpose, but an abortion was simply desired. That case has resulted in the deaths of an estimated 62 million infants since that time and has become the common form of birth control for millions. There has been an average of more than 1 million infants per year for the past 48 years put to death by abortion. 
with a high of more than one and a half million per year between the years 1980 and 1993. Think of it. That's 10 times as many people as Hitler murdered in the Nazi death camps. That is 50 times as many people as have died in all the wars throughout all of US history. Abortion for now 48 years has been the leading cause of death in the United States. More than cancer, more than heart disease, more than accidents, more than homicides, more than suicides. We have bemoaned the loss this year of 700,000 people due to a virus. That would be a low number of abortions in a year. And it has gone on every year for 48 years. Yet it's a legal and accepted practice. Proponents speak of it as not as abortion, but as abortion rights. Have you ever noticed how the language has shifted? The language has shifted from something that's permitted to something that is now regarded as a right. And they speak of those who oppose abortion, not as pro-life, but as anti-abortion rights. So they would cast anyone who is against abortion as someone who is against other people exercising their rights. That's, that's very strategic in that language. And rather than casting themselves as pro-death, since they are trampling on the rights of the unborn. And make no mistake, abortion was sold to the general populace as something that was needed to save the life of mothers in cases of rape and incest. And yet that is not at all the case. Those are called therapeutic abortions performed to save the life of a mother in cases of rape or incest or sometimes fetal abnormalities, but they are in reality simply elective abortions. That's what most of them are, matters of choice. Fewer than 5% of the abortions that have, been, that have been performed in 48 years, fewer than 5% have been therapeutic in nature. The other 95% plus have been elective they have been abortion on demand simply because someone wanted an abortion and did not want a baby. One of the main arguments that is used to promote legalized abortion is that the fetus, and they always use that term rather than baby or infant, that the fetus is not a person. The fetus is not a person. Yet they've never been able to tell us when a fetus evolves into a person. Nobody ever has a fetus shower once the birth takes place. So at some point, the fetus becomes a person, but they can't tell us when that is. And yet they argue that it's all right to kill that fetus because it isn't a person. Where is the line? Those of you who have been around that long, if you remember, initially abortions were limited to within the first 16 weeks in most states. And then that number got enlarged to 20 weeks, and then it got enlarged to 26 weeks. And then it got extended to what are called late-term or third-trimester abortions, those in the last three months of a pregnancy. Finally, then, it came to what are known as partial birth abortions, which in reality is a case in which the baby's head is exposed, but then the child is executed before it fully emerges from its mother's womb. Apparently, it's still not a person. 
And now we're being told, even by our governor, that if the family so desires, it would be legitimate to give birth to the child and then let the child die. And that there should be nothing considered barbaric about that. You see, what our governor has been saying is simply a logical extension of that thinking. If it's okay to kill the infant in the womb, if it's okay to kill it when it's partially in and partially out of the womb, then why, not, is, why is it not okay once it's outside the womb, if that's what the mother chooses? This is the conclusion even of some so-called medical ethicists who take it even further, who argue that both the fetus and the newborn child do not have what they call moral status as persons. They do not have moral status as persons. They are only potential persons. And as long as they are potential persons and not fully persons, then it is all right to put them to death. In a 2012 paper in the Journal of Medical Ethics, a team of scholars, now the name of Alberto Giubilini and Francesca Minerva, said this, and I'm quoting here, what we call after birth abortion, parentheses, killing a newborn, should be permissible in all the cases where the abortion is, including cases where the newborn is not disabled. I'm going to read that again, and I want you to think about it. What we call after birth abortion, killing a newborn, should be permissible in all the cases where abortion is, including cases where the newborn is not disabled. Further in the paper, they continue, if criteria such as costs, social, psychological, and economic, are good enough reasons for having an abortion, even when the fetus is healthy, if the moral status of the newborn is the same as that of the infant, and if neither has any moral value by virtue of being a potential person, then the same reasons which justify abortion should also justify the killing of the potential person when it is at the stage of a newborn. And these people are ethicists. I had to go back and read the paper two or three times to convince myself that they were not trying to shock people into seeing how wrong it is to perform abortions, that they were seriously advocating that in any case that would justify an abortion, whether there was a need or not, whether the child was, uh, the preborn child was, uh, had any sort of abnormality or not, that there would be a justification not for allowing to die, but for killing a newborn child. We think, but that's not what's being done. Here's the truth. That's not what's being done yet. But if the logic that has led us to where we are continues, that is exactly the next step. That is exactly the next step. What the authors do not go on to say is if you follow their logic, then a child or any other human being could be killed at any stage simply because others decide that it has no, quote, moral value as a person. And who makes that decision? So you see, what started off as a poorly reasoned and morally bankrupt argument for the ending of life in the womb has now, for many, become reason enough for ending any life 
that they find inconvenient. And who gets to make that decision? The parents decide who lives and dies. Do medical experts decide it? Do medical ethicists, such as the authors of the paper just cited, does the state decide who has moral value and who does not? Who would you want making that decision for you? Because that's where it's headed. Who would you want making that decision whether your life had moral value or whether it was simply going to be too costly or too much trouble for you to live? And therefore, you should be put to death. Any and all of these have been done at various points throughout history, and they are being done again, and all in the name of choice. But here's the question. Whose choice? Who gets to decide? It's certainly not the infant. It's certainly not the unborn baby. The most helpless, the most innocent of all. It certainly is not them. So who gets to decide? Who has the right to determine if the life forming in a mother's womb isn't really a person and if it has no moral value. Scripture shows us clearly that ending the life of the unborn certainly is not God's choice. According to Scripture, as you heard read at the beginning of the worship this morning, we are all made in the image of God. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. We are made in the image and the likeness of God. And that is true from the very outset. If it isn't, when, at what moment do we become in the image of God? If not at the moment when we, when we are conceived. The unborn child from the moment of conception has all of the elements present in its DNA to be a total person, a total human being. At what point then, if not at that point, does that person, does that child, does that tissue, as some like to call it, pass into having the image of God? You heard the reading from Psalms 139, verses 13 to 16. I want to point out those verses to you again. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately formed in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. Did you notice what the psalmist said? He said that he was already a person while he was still in the womb. He talks about my unformed substance. He said, you made my inward parts. You knitted me together. He didn't say you made something that turned into me. He said, you made me. You knitted me together. Unborn children are an act of God. Fearfully and wonderfully made, he says, and we are tampering with something sacred when we interrupt that process for whatever reason. Fearfully and wonderfully made, and we need to take note of that. Genesis chapter 25, verse 22, talks about the unborn twins, Jacob and Esau, struggling in their mother's womb. And here's what the Bible says, the children struggled within her. Jacob and Esau were Jacob and Esau while they were in Rebekah's womb. 
They may not have had names yet, but they were already the people they were going to be while they were in their mother's womb. That's what scripture says. Luke chapter 1, verse 44. Mary, who is pregnant with Jesus, goes to see her kinswoman Elizabeth. And when she walks into the house, Elizabeth says this, For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And the word for baby there is a Greek word, brephos. It means infant. It's not a mass of tissue. It's not a fetus. It's an infant. She said, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And in the next chapter, Luke 2 and verse 12, that same word brephos is used to describe Jesus after he was born. That child within her womb was a person. It was a child. Conception, according to scripture, is part of the ongoing work of God. Genesis chapter 4 and verse 1. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. Genesis 21, 1 and 2. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his, own, in his old age. And doesn't scripture teach us that we are to love our neighbors. And what could be more selfish or more unloving than to destroy a human life simply because it's not wanted, simply because it's inconvenient, simply because it's going to be too expensive, simply because it threatens to disrupt our career plans, or simply because taking care of it would be costly and difficult. Love your neighbor, Jesus said. And what was it Jesus said about following him? If anyone would follow me, let him what? Deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Deny yourself, Jesus said. Yet abortion on demand is at the heart of it, a selfish act, no matter how else you might try to define it. We have our goals, our plans, our priorities, and anything that gets in the way needs to be discarded, we're told, even if it's another human life. I appreciate the words of Roger McCown, who wrote this. I find it ironic that of all the arguments for permitting abortion, perhaps the one with the least foundation is that one that argues that it is not life because it is not viable. The truth is exactly the opposite. The only reason that life is distinguished in the womb is because everyone tacitly agrees that it is life. And if you leave it alone, it will result in a human baby that will demand of you what life always demands. Inconvenience, money, time, frustration, pain, and heartache with joy and contentment thrown into the mix along the way. All of that comes, but all of that's part of the price of being human. It clearly is not God's choice what is going on in our nation. It clearly is not his choice. So what can Christians do about it? We haven't been able to stop this Holocaust in 48 years. And there's been a lot of effort extended toward that. But it hasn't happened. So what can we do about it? What can we do now? I want to make six suggestions to you, and I hope you'll take each of these to heart. And the very first one is to pray. 
Tomorrow, the Supreme Court of the United States is going to take up a review of that recent law passed in Texas. Tomorrow, they're going to be discussing this very thing. That is necessarily going to involve a review of the constitutionality of the Roe versus Wade decision. It could well lead to its reversal. Abortion proponents have been fearing this for years. And it may now well come to fruition that it could be reversed. We ought to be praying that it does and praying fervently that it does. The second thing that you and I can do is we can vote. Whenever you hear a candidate say that he or she is pro-choice or they are pro-women's health or they are pro-reproductive rights, understand fully what it is they're really saying. They are saying that they are pro-death for unborn children, plain and simple. Don't be fooled by all the positive-sounding rhetoric. They're still talking about continuing the slaughter of millions of unborn children. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out how a Christian ought to vote on that. Number three, speak up. It may not be popular, but get some courage and let other people know what you believe. Goodness knows the pro-death people are going to let you know what they believe. They're letting everybody know what they believe. So we need to speak up and let them know what we think. Don't let theirs be the only voice in the room or the only voice in the neighborhood or the only voice in the carpool or the only voice anywhere else. Speak up. Number four, teach your children. Teach them how special they are. Teach them how special every child is, regardless of economic status or disabilities. Teach them what Scripture says about the sanctity of human life and the seriousness of tampering with it. Teach them to practice sexual integrity because it's the lack of sexual control that leads to the vast majority of abortions in the first place. Teach them that their bodies are the temple of God's Spirit and that they have been bought with a price and are therefore to glorify God in their bodies. Number five, practice what you preach. Be ready to help people struggling with a pregnancy that is problematic for them. Encourage them in every way that you can. If they need financial help, offer it. If they need emotional support, give it. If they need companionship, provide it. Whatever it is that we can do to encourage them not to practice abortion, we need to do it. Not just talk about it, but actually do something. Show that you value life, not just by speaking up for it, but by acting for it as well. And then finally, preach the good news. Preach the good news. You know, with so many abortions, there are now millions of women and men who have had a part in destroying the lives of unborn children. Some of those lives are shattered and broken by that decision. Not all of them, but some of them are. Let them know that as bad as that is, God isn't finished with them yet. And that he stands ready to wash all their sins away, including that one. If they will only turn in faith to his son, Christ Jesus. Don't let the fact that you know someone has had an abortion keep you from speaking to them about the Lord. Let, them be that, let that be a reason to speak to them about the Lord. You may not be able to save the life 
of a child, but you can save a soul. It isn't as though there's nothing we can do. There's a lot we can do. And God would have us do it. And God help us to stand up, speak up, pray up, vote up, help. Do whatever we can to stop this horror that goes on day by day. Bow with me and pray, please. Father, we come to you this morning confessing that we are sinful people, that our society is sick, that any society that would allow what this one does has seriously distorted its values because it's turned away from you. Father, we pray for that to change. We pray, Father, for our Supreme Court justices who will be considering this case, this terrible mistake that was made 48 years ago. Pray for that to be reversed. We pray, Father, that people will come into positions of influence and authority who will stand up for the rights of the unborn. We pray, Father, for ourselves that we will speak up and, and help in every way that we can, that we will proclaim the good news of your love for all of your creation, even when we've gone so far astray. We pray, Father, that you would help us to realize that uh, this is a passing world and that we must look to you. We must build our hope in you, not in humans or in human institutions, but only in you. Father, we pray for those whose lives have been shattered by abortion. We pray for them not to despair, but for them to have hope in the gospel of Jesus. And we pray, Father, for more and more people to be brought to Christ, that you would help us to be your instruments in doing that. We thank you, Father, for this time of worship together. Thank you for this time to think about this, this terrible topic, this terrible sin that besets us. We pray, Father, for it to come to an end. We pray for your kingdom to come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may not yet have given your life to Christ, and so you may be carrying sins that keep you from God. If you haven't given it to Christ, you are carrying sins that keep you from God. But when you turn to him through Jesus, then those sins will be taken away. And so we want to encourage you this morning. If you realize that you're lost, you realize that you need God's forgiveness, that you would let that be known today and that you desire to change, that you desire to have God to wash away all your sins through the blood of Jesus and put his spirit within you. That can happen today when you confess his name and are baptized into Christ. If you're ready to do that and you want to come and tell us publicly, you can do that or you can tell us later. But whatever you do, please do it. Let's stand together and sing. I am resolved no longer to linger, charm 